Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's science headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral researchers involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, September 1st, 2020, we have with us Ahmed Hassan, a postdoc in the Diamond Lab at Washington University School of Medicine. Ahmed obtained a veterinary degree and a master's degree in veterinary medical sciences from Beni Swaf University in Egypt and a PhD in molecular virology from Purdue University, where he studied the use of adenoviruses as a vector for influenza virus vaccines. He has a recent first author paper online in Cell highlighting the potential importance of intranasal administration for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines called a single-dose intranasal chimp adenovirus vaccine protects upper and lower respiratory tracts against SARS-CoV-2. On a personal note, I have known Ahmed since he joined the Diamond Lab in 2017 and have enjoyed many conversations about science. Hi Ahmed, happy to have you with us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in virology research? Initially, I was interested in uh, becoming like a medical doctor and getting a medical uh, doctor degree. But uh, the way the system works out in Egypt is, is different than uh, the US. So it's, a, it's basically based on uh, your GPA that qualifies you for which college to, you can join. And uh, instead, I, I joined, uh, it's something related to still medicine, and uh, I, instead I joined the vet school to pursue my DVM degree uh, in the vet school. Thinking back, what inspired you to get a veterinary degree? Do you have family members in medicine or science? Not really. I'm the first person to go uh, into medical, uh, study medical field, like whether it's vet, vet school or the medical school. Uh, I'm the first person and it was uh, fascinating uh, how they were helping me and, and uh, encouraging me all the time and pushing me forward. What did you do after vet school? What I did after graduating from the vet school, I did practice as a veterinarian for uh, some time. Uh, and I had a, a large animal clinic. I was uh, treating cattle and horses and, uh, and also uh, dealing with uh, some uh, poultry farms and uh, managing the system in poultry farms. But at that time, that it was the time when, when uh, avian influenza came from uh, East Southeast Asia and started to infect humans. Uh, and I thought to myself, that was, that caused very huge economic loss, uh, especially like in countries like Egypt where poultry uh, was um, a main source, is a main source for meat. So um, I thought to myself at that time, why don't you study viruses to understand uh, what what it is, it's all about and how, how can you like prevent this from happen, happening. So that was the notion or the, the, the ignition that uh, make, made me excited about stu studying viruses. 
And at that time, I decided to go back to the graduate school, in the, which is part of the, the, the VIT school. And I joined the graduate program in the VIT school uh, for a master's degree. But uh, at that time, uh, I started with studying a different viruses than what, what really ignited my passion to study viruses. And so my passion was studying influenza flu. But then, I, I, in the, my master's degree, I studied uh, PISTI viruses, and that includes bovine viral diarrhea virus and uh, some uh, vi another virus called border disease virus. And it's, there's a really fascinating site uh, about these viruses, which made me interested more into understanding immunology uh, and viral immunology. The fascinating site is, is uh, that the virus can infect uh, pregnant moms, pregnant cows, and from these pregnant cows, it can infect the fetuses before they develop their immune system. And that makes what's known as per persistently infected animals, because the immune system of these uh, uh, embryos will never define uh, the, the, the virus as a foreign engine. So it, it's, it's, it gets recognized as a self-engine, and that's why these animals are born as persistently infected. When did you first come to the United States? During my master's, actually, I got the chance to get some training at University of Minnesota, where uh, I joined the veterinary diagnostic laboratory there, and I got the chance to get the exposure uh, to uh, many aspects of virology and other diseases other than virology because I was working in the diagnostic lab where uh, all the farmers uh, submit their uh, samples and their animals to the diagnostic laboratory. So I got so much exposure about uh, viruses that are infecting animals and my excitement became much more in studying these viruses and understanding the, the zoonotic aspect of how these viruses are being transmitted to humans and causing these big troubles in humans. And how did you get to graduate school? After my first trip to the US uh, through uh, that training, I, I decided to go uh, to Purdue University where the, the ignition, initial ignition came back again to study flu and uh, design vaccines and start to tackle the problem of uh, avian influenza and, and uh, working on that. What was the focus of your PhD research? Yeah, so, uh, so, the, so during my PhD, the, the focus of my research was uh, at molecular virology of adenoviruses, understanding the packaging of adenoviruses, and and also uh, with the illustration on using adenoviruses as as vectors for vaccines, and especially uh, influenza vaccines. How did you get your postdoc in the Diamond Lab? So studying this aspect made me interested in more into understanding the adaptive immune responses. And how I get I, I got uh, into uh, into Diamond Lab. Actually, this is a uh, there is a cool story behind it because I was in a in, in a Keystone meeting presenting my PhD work, and and then I uh, there was a talk uh, 
that Mike gave about uh, vaccine, developing vaccine, uh, the mRNA vaccine for Zika virus. And actually, I, I thought to myself, well, this is, this is really cool. And I want to study this more and understand it, understand more about adaptive immune responses and B cell uh, responses and the antibody repertoire. So I talked to Mike uh, during that meeting to initiate uh, to initiate that, and all things happened, and now here I am at, at Mike Diamond Lab. Can you describe your research in the Diamond Lab? So uh, I joined Mike Diamond Lab as a postdoc three years ago with an uh, interest in understanding the, the adaptive immune responses, uh, especially to vaccines and looking into antibody repertoire and B-cell uh, responses. And, and we published a paper, uh, we, we think we kicked off with the studying some uh, gorilla adenovirus-based vaccine uh, where we studied the immunogenicity and uh, protective efficacy of this vaccine in, in different uh, Zika models. Uh, after uh, that, we're designing studies to look at the impact of uh, pre-existing uh, immunity on, on responses to vaccines and, and, and many other things related to Zika viruses and other flaviviruses. How did you start working on COVID-19 research? So given my expertise in the vaccine and especially the, vaccine, the adenovirus vaccine field, uh, so that was started early on in January uh, to, de to design and start making the vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, so that was the main uh, reason why I got involved because given, given my experience with uh, vaccinology and adenovirus in general. Can you describe in a little bit more detail the COVID-19 related research you've been doing in the Diamond Lab? Well, I started a design with the vaccine design in collaboration with the Curel Lab at Washington University. After making the vaccine and immunizing mice, uh, we started to test these vaccines in, in, in mice and, and, and see what their immunogenicity, evaluate their immunogenicity and protective efficacy in the model that we have developed. And by that time, uh, there was uh, the transgenic model, uh, the transgenic mouse model that uh, that's permanently uh, expressing human ACE2, the receptor for uh, coronavirus, that was uh, available at that time. And uh, so we tested the vaccine in that model as well. And the vaccine uh, was really protective. Can you comment on the main take-home message of that work, that intranasal vaccination may be superior? Yes, yeah, that's that's the the most I would say the most exciting part of the story, and I would I would consider this uh, because uh, actually my uh, when I started the vaccine work uh, for COVID nineteen early on, uh, so that the, the the virus was killing people, and I I really felt uh, at that time, given that I have have done work with vaccines all this throughout my career. So I, I was thinking to myself and even talked to some of the folks in the lab that I really, I really want to do something about it. I feel it's my responsibility to uh, help with this by making this vaccine. Uh, 
And, and then, uh, so we started on uh, the study giving the vaccine with the regular route we usually use with the, with the adenovirus vaccines, uh, which is intramuscular immunization. And, uh, and during that time, like Mike, even before uh, seeing the results of, of these uh, intramuscular immunization, Mike suggested uh, doing uh, intranasal immunizations, and I thought to myself, "Why? I, I was I was I was not really excited about it, and uh, I was not sure if this is going to make uh, any difference." But when when we did uh, a, a challenge after intramuscular immunization, there was some level of virus replication that um, that was still there. It was reduced, greatly reduced, but it was still the virus replicating. So the vaccine was not blocking the virus completely. And I thought to myself, well, that's it. Uh, that's what we could do. And that's what we have done. And let's, let's get th this paper out. And I was like pressing with Mike very much to, to uh, like get the paper. I already start, started writing and putting figures together. together. And at that time, Mike was, uh, let's, let's wait and see what the uh, IN uh, immunization looks like. And I, I was thinking to myself, well, it's not going to be any different. I don't think it will be any different. But surprisingly, and this was a real surprise to me and all the people in the lab, that the intranasal immunization worked really better than the intramuscular immunization. So why do you think it's working so well? The reason behind it might be some induction of the mucosal immune responses. Uh, especially, uh, we found very high levels of IgA in the lungs, uh, which are mucosal, protecting the mucosal surfaces in the respiratory tract. And the uh, other thing is the lung resident T, uh, CD8 T cells. So there was some level of uh, lung res activated lung resident T cells that are pr that's producing uh, interferon gamma. And uh, definitely that played a big role in uh, clearing the virus and uh, preventing the infection, blocking the virus replication completely in the lungs and in the upper respiratory tract as well. So turning back to more personal things, what was the most difficult thing you've had to overcome in your career so far? And how did you overcome it? I think that time was uh, my, the graduate school. To be honest, uh, the graduate school was a tough time for me because I, uh, I was, I was uh, raised and uh, I was born and raised in Egypt, and that was like a big time to be away from home. And uh, I didn't have a family at that time, so it was a very hard time to, you know, to be. To be without support, in addition to the frustrations that you get uh, with research and graduate school as normal. So, uh, so it was like uh, multiplied by 10, I would say, because of, uh, because of all the, the things related to it. But uh, at that time, I came to know uh, my wife, my future wife at that time, and she was really supportive uh, to me during that time. If you are talking about uh, research, uh, uh, difficult time. So she was supportive uh, and um, stood behind me during that time and uh, was uh, because I, I at that time actually I was thinking 
of maybe quitting at, at some point because of the frustrations. But that, uh, that was really helpful from her and that uh, helped me push forward during the graduate school time. So that was the most difficult time to me. So you are still early in your career, but if you had a chance to ask your older self, say you at 70 when you had retired, one question, what would it be? The question I will um, ask myself whether I, I really did what I wanted. That's, that, that's the question which I will, will be remaining all the time. Is this really something I, I, I did want to do or, or I was just doing it because I have to do it? To follow up on that, how do you make sure you are doing the right thing? Yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, that the choices are really, uh, are really tough to uh, decide at some time, sometimes. And uh, so making sure to, to you are making the right choices, I would say, uh, I will look in the future, so that it's vice versa. It's the opposite of what you have said. I look, I look at the future and then think about, well, is this really something I would love to see myself in 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 five years, for example? Do I want to see myself as a PI having my own group and pursuing my passion into doing research in in five years? And what area of research? am I interested in, in, in doing or pursuing? So uh, that will be a, a, a key to, the, to answer that uh, difficult question at this time. And, and definitely seek the experts' uh, opinions and uh, talk to people uh, and ask them, because definitely they have gone through similar stuff. So that uh, seeking, uh, seeking expertise, experience that will be also helpful to decide and make the right decision. Continuing on the personal level, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? What has changed for you? Well, everything has changed to be, <laughs> it, it has affected everyone's life. Uh, so at the personal level, uh, we are very limited in like seeing our families and friends and my kids are staying at home no school which is really painful and hard time for all of us and and like the 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 moment we decide to go out and they see the street they they become so excited and and so happy and so where i was I, I'm talking to my wife all the time. What what era are we living in? It's it's something like we when we see the street now, it's become it became something really good. <laughs> so it yeah uh, yeah. So it's 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 a hard time I, I I believe to everyone, and it has changed my my life personally at the personal level. It has changed a lot. You're obviously working a lot during this time. What do you do in your free time during the COVID-19 pandemic? Have you picked up any new hobbies? I had a free time before the COVID, actually. <laughs> but uh, since the COVID, uh, the work, like, workload uh, had become much more. Uh, and I'm, tr I'm, I'm still trying to get uh, some time to myself. And uh, actually, I'm, 
I started to think of doing biking uh, recently. I didn't start yet, but this is a thought, uh, maybe during the summertime to enjoy the weather and uh, explore, uh, explore St. Louis uh, while, while I'm biking. As a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself, your family, and your community safe? Yeah, so this is, the, uh, during that uh, hard time, you definitely, like, you would let uh, people who are not uh, virologists and not understanding the, what, what's happening here. Uh, so, like, my family or friends, I would, uh, I would talk to them and uh, give them advices and trying to make them understand how, how it's really... Uh, that the virus is spread, for example, how is it really happening and how to protect yourself and how to be cautious about uh, handling stuff and uh, putting masks. And you will see some resistance at some point. People are not taking it really seriously. But uh, I mean, the, the community needs to be educated about that. And that's uh, our role to, to share with them our thoughts and politely advising them and help and helping them through uh, through through this how is your family doing in egypt so what's it like there it's it's different than here my parents are living in egypt i have also two sisters are living in egypt and it's it it has been a really tough time for uh, for them as well especially given the the healthcare system is not as efficient as it is in the us and the access to the healthcare system is also different. What did they think about your situation here? They were, uh, well, they, they knew that I was working uh, with COVID and they were very supportive and uh, like uh, trying every single talk I have uh, or call I have with them. They ask me, did you discover something new? Did you come up with a drug? Did you come up with a vaccine? What's the situation? Uh, we are praying for you, you know, so that was all the time happening and still happening till today. So, and they got excited when, uh, when, uh, when I told them about the vaccine story and uh, that we are uh, working on this and we'll come up with a solution for it. So we're winding down. Do you have any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about the future of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, at this time, uh, uh, there is, there is, we, we still need to learn. We have learned a lot about COVID-19 in this short period of time, but there is still uh, a lot to learn more. Uh, we don't know the durability of vaccines. So there are so many vaccines out there and some of them are in phase three. Uh, we, we don't know how durable this immune response, how durable, how durable the immune response is against the virus itself especially in the light of some cases are coming, uh, having reinfection happening again. So is this going to be a common, something that's happening regularly, seasonally, or even in waves? Uh, so this is still need to be figured out and whether uh, there will be some different uh, strains that can make infections similar to influenza, for example. But I, the important thing that I want to emphasize that um, there was a paper uh, came out a few years ago, and it was a, about the speculation of a new coronavirus causing a pandemic. 
it's a message to decision makers and uh, and people in science that these that we are doing science for the good of people and please take that seriously so uh and also it's an emphasis on the importance of the one health program like screening different animals screening different bats and all these because we we do all that to speculate what's going to happen in the coming years we don't know exactly 100 percent or we we have we have no idea how this is going to exactly happening but we give some hints and something is going to happen like if we if we had uh, some broadly reactive uh, antibodies against coronavirus that could help us a lot with this thank you ahmed for talking with us today ahmed's previous studies allowed him and his collaborators to quickly design a chimp adenovirus based vaccine which shows promise in animal models in protecting against sars cov2 infection even in the upper respiratory tract, which may potentially prevent transmission of the virus. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Marissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google and Apple Podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com. 